Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk of Radio. It is dark, it is gloomy and Storm Francis is wreaking havoc up and down the country. But, ladies and gentlemen, it is the second storm system in a month but it's nothing compared to what is going on on this show today and what is going to happen over the course of the next three hours. After our victory with the BBC yesterday, it seems we will hear the dulcet tones of Royal Britannia and Land of Hope and Glory at last night of the proms after all. But the weasels have said we won't be able to listen to the words. Well, guess what? We'll be able to play you the words all the way through the show today uh, and forever uh, for the rest of this week. Well, I've got some news for them as well. Uh, You can stick that in your woke pipe and smoke it. Coming up later on today, we are delighted to announce that we're joined once more by Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage. He's going to bring us up to date with the illegal migrant crisis. There might not be any dinghies turning up at the moment, thanks to the weather, but there's plenty to discuss. Like, for example, how many councils are now actively seeking landlords to rent accommodation to the thousands of refugees currently being put up in hotels up and down the country. We've been putting questions to Serco. We've been putting questions to the Home Office. We'll be telling you precisely what the answers are going to be. But I tell you what, they are running scared right now of actually admitting precisely how many people are here, precisely how many of them are being put up in hotels, and precisely when and where they are going to be moved to. We would also need your help as well, of course, so do let us know what you're seeing in your neck of the woods, what you're hearing, and what you are being told. 0344 499 Coming up later on, we'll be talking to former commander of British Forces in Afghanistan, Colonel Richard Kemp, who will be giving us his view on the bizarre news that the military wants to do away with all of our tanks. Plus, we're joined by commentator Alex Phillips, who's struggling with the rules on the wearing of masks. And we're popping across to Madrid to get the latest on holiday time with our correspondent there, Rebecca Nunes, 0344. 499-1000. Plus, we'll be continuing our crusade to get Britain back to work. Senior Tories are joining me, led by Ian Duncan-Smith, in beseeching Boris Johnson to get the civil service back uh, for a start, and then urging everyone else to get back to the office too. Richard Tice told us back on Friday uh, that basically what we should be doing is taxing people who work from home. That got an amazing response, an amazing uh, debate going over the course of the weekend. Uh, But we really do need to talk about this, and we will be talking about it coming up later on in the show. You know it makes sense. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I have got a sheaf of documentation here from the Home Office, and this is all figures that they've been giving us over the course of the last two weeks, because every single week we ask them for more information. And we have here, for example, uh, the asylum seekers in receipt of Section 95 support by the top five nationalities uh, in the region. We've got the East Midlands, the East of England, London, North East, North West, Northern Ireland, Scotland, South East. And guess what? Uh, The number of people who are being housed in this country is going up and up and up. It says here, immigration statistics. This is just for the year ending March 2020, by the way. So we don't even know how much numbers have risen since then. But I can tell you that Nigel Farage probably can tell us that it's risen by approximately three to 4,000. Nigel Farage joins us right now. Uh, he is, of course, the leader of the Brexit Party, the man who has single-handedly brought this issue to the fore uh, and to the front of uh, and centre of the media. The rest of the media, Nigel, of course, have forgotten about it now because they did it last week. But we haven't forgotten about it. Very good morning good morning yeah i mean look the actual situation with dinghies crossing the channel 
uh, is now part of mainstream media debate. It took me a very long time to get it there, and you were very helpful mm. with that, Mike. But but that story they are now covering, and as soon as this storm passes and the dinghies start to come again, that will be talked about. Um, what we tend to focus on through the media are the numbers being taken into the reception center at Dover. Mm. What's not being discussed enough are those that are landing on our beaches and simply disappearing. And there are plenty of those as well. When it comes to where everyone's being housed, I guess of the things that I covered, the one that did get the most coverage was the constituency in Pretty Patel's own constituency, yes. the, 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 the Riven Hall Hotel. Mm. Uh, now, of course, that was an acute embarrassment to the Home Secretary. Um, I can tell you that the migrants in that hotel have now been removed. Um, I don't know where they've gone to, but they've been removed. But since I started exposing the hotels, I have literally had hundreds, perhaps even into the thousands of people reporting to me from all over the country, yeah. hotels being filled. Uh, empty offices being converted into residential accommodation, um, private houses, you know, council housing being repurchased by councils. Um, from what I can make out, it's the northwest of, the, of England that is bearing the biggest burden of this. Uh, what I'm also certain of is there is a growing sense of anger in these communities, anger that you know their own uh, you know pregnant daughter can't get on the council housing list, anger that we've got people who served in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, that are living rough on our streets, uh, and, 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 and real anger amongst people who legally want to come to the United Kingdom, are happy to go through the hoops, happy to pay the money, yeah. uh, that you can come here illegally, be housed, uh, given full health care. I mean, in some parts of the country, might, they're even employing teams of GPs to make sure that we give all the migrants full medicals um, and any treatment that they need. So I do sense uh, that the one thing that gets the British about this is it's just not fair. Exactly right. And you're totally correct, by the way, and I can confirm, because I've got the figures in front of me, that the North West is, is in fact, taking by far and away the largest brunt of this, because I'm looking at figures, and these only go up to March 2020, remember. Uh, 10,000 people are housed in the North West. That is by far and away the biggest number uh, of yeah. any of the other areas uh, that I'm looking at. And it says here uh, that the North West, uh, in terms of uh, the numbers of people from whence they come, Iraq, 1,562 Iran 1,191 Pakistan 788 Albania which we've discussed before 654 Nigeria 469 and the most interesting one is other and these of course will be the ones who throw their IDs into the sea uh, so nobody knows where they're from 4,995 yeah I mean a lot of people of course now are coming from Africa um, and, and your figures there don't reflect that but a lot of people are coming from Eritrea countries like well that, that will be I other mean, I guess right yeah, no, absolutely. But look, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Even the United Nations last week said that over 70 percent of those who go from Libya to Italy or Greece would never qualify as refugees. Right. And, and this is the point we've got to make. All the language that gets used in British media is about asylum seekers, people seeking refuge. The correct word in the overwhelming majority of cases is illegal immigrants. Yeah come into this country via criminal gangs, who've come into this country because the pull factors here are so great. Now, we keep hearing tough words from Priti Patel. We know that Boris Johnson is now under huge pressure from, you know, at least 40 of his own backbenchers. And we are told that some primary legislation may get put before Parliament this autumn. But the problem is... How many more thousands will come and need to be housed and put pressure onto those communities before anything passes into law? And I, I actually think uh, that the government needs to say to the European Union, as part of the negotiations that are ongoing, you know, we are overriding the Dublin regulations, which allows people effectively 
not to claim asylum in France, but to come to Britain. Mm. And, we're, and we're, you know, we're going to overrule them immediately. That's the only way we're going to stop this flow this year. Yes, exactly right. Because the 40 MPs who have got together to write a letter, they are seeking a change in the law, which would make it possible uh, or impossible rather for asylum seekers to come here if they've previously passed through a country where they could have sought asylum, which seems to me to be a sensible move. But as you say, you know what's going to happen. Uh, it will be a year before any legislation gets into 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 the sort of the law books. And, it, and there'll be some idiot who says, why don't we just have an amnesty and let everybody stay? Well, then the worry, of course, here is that the prime minister himself, when he was mayor of London, twice suggested amnesties for all illegal immigrants who'd come into London. So we have a prime minister who is very soft on this. I, I still think in her heart the Home Secretary wants to deal with this. I genuinely do. But she's got to have the prime minister and cabinet fully behind her. Absolutely right. Because the other problem, of course, that we're seeing, Nigel, as well, is this latest kind of manoeuvre by local councils to put out quite um, sort of aggressively messages to private landlords saying, do you have any properties uh, that we can rent from you? They claim that they're going to offer them slightly less than the market price. But don't worry, because you'll never have a problem with the tenants because we'll pay for it and you will always get your bills paid at the end of every month. And it's quite an extraordinary state of affairs, as you say, when ordinary people from this country cannot get themselves on the council housing list. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I mean this, is, this, is, this is a growing problem. And, and I would say that of the messages that, that I've had back from the public, at least a quarter um, are from people saying, look, this is happening, you know, here in Coventry. There's a hotel with 250 migrants in, uh, you know, gangs of people walking around the town. Uh, and yet, you know, here we are with a heavily pregnant daughter, uh, you know, who uh, who um, has been through a tough time and we can't even get her on the council housing list. So, yeah, this is a growing issue. I mean, look, we have an exploding population anyway, yeah. which has put massive pressure on social services. And all we're doing here is adding to it in the most extraordinary way. Well, we keep being told we've got a housing shortage, don't we? I mean, how is it possible um, yeah. that somehow councils in this country can find the money? Because they're always also telling us that they haven't got any money because the government has taken all their money away. Uh, they can suddenly find money to house upwards of, I think we've counted this number before, but it's upwards of some 50,000 people over the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the last official figure we have is 48,000 people mm. currently being housed. But that's before this big wave across the channel uh, happened. So, you know, it's obviously now in excess of 50,000. Uh, it is a staggering number of people. The budget for this is four billion sterling mm. for the next 10 years. That's an underestimate. But hey, add on to that, add on to that the cost of social security payments. Yeah. Add on to that uh, the cost of healthcare, uh, and and you you know you start to look. What was the old Warren Buffett quote? A billion here, a billion there. <laughs> so which- we're talking real money. Yeah, absolutely right. And this is the other thing as well that, you know, nobody will tell me. We keep asking them. Serco, the Home Office, they go backwards and forwards. One reflects us, one refers us to the other. Yeah. The other one refers us back. You know, we keep saying to them, when, at what point uh, does lockdown uh, release the people who are in these hotels into private housing? And where do they go? Yeah, well, of course, what really happens here is that people go through uh, the refugee claim process in this country. It is a very slow, very lengthy process. Uh, it also, of course, has the right to appeal. Mm. Uh, and that means many of these people will be housed in these hotels for a long period of time. At the end of that process, when the majority are rejected, as surely they will be, that's when the even bigger problem comes. Because that's when we find, you know, that probably only one in four of, and that's historic. Only one in four of those whose claims are rejected ever get removed anywhere else. Mm. The rest just disappear off into mod- effectively a form of modern day slavery in Britain, you know, where they're picked up by the gangs. Uh, and, 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 you know, I'm afraid we've seen this, haven't we? We've seen the exposure of the rag trade in Leicester. Yeah. We, we repeatedly see uh, some of our giant agribusinesses you know, employing very large number of illegal migrants. And I've also had a few tip-offs um, about one or two construction companies yeah. who were clearly quite happy to employ illegal labour. Do you know why? 
because it's cheaper. Because it's cheaper, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Well, listen, we all know, I mean, anecdotally, uh, all you've got to do is walk around the streets of London and see guys sitting on walls having their sandwiches at lunchtime uh, to yeah. know where they're coming from. You know, there's nothing against these people coming here to work. Absolutely not. But let's do it right. Let's do it properly. Let's protect them and let's make sure that they're paying taxes as well. And we know all about the Albanian story because we've been told that by uh, several sort of senior police officers that yeah. most of the Albanians coming here, and this is not by any means a slur on Albania, but an awful lot of the people that end up coming here from Albania are working in the cocaine business. Yeah, and I mean, you could even talk uh, not just about illegal immigration, uh, Mike, you could even talk about legal immigration and just have a, I tell you what, do yourself a favour, have a look at how many metropolitan police arrests there have been of people of Romanian origin mm. over the last few years. You know, and that's legal immigration because yeah. we supported Romania joining the European Union, even though the country, with Bulgaria as well, wasn't out of the grip of organised crime. Mm. It really is quite extraordinary. And what about these people that we've seen over the last few weeks, Nigel, since you've exposed this particular scandal, mm. talking about how it's our fault, you know, we bombed these countries, therefore we've destabilised them. I mean, in my view, it's complete and utter nonsense because we certainly didn't bomb Pakistan, as far as I remember, or uh, Iran, uh, or indeed Albania. And yet... Or Eritrea. Or, or Eritrea, or Sudan, and I don't know whether and I don't know whether you heard the story that we did last week, where we had a call from a guy in the Isle of Man who's got a daughter who works in a Christian charity in the Sudan, right? And she's told her father on the phone, "All we see now is guys coming, human traffickers coming into our camps." giving people mobile phones and basically showing them your um, video from Anfield saying, come to Britain, uh, you'll be able to go to Anfield, you'll be able to see the Football League, uh, oh, you'll gosh. be able to see the Premier League, you'll be able to have a house, you'll be able to have a hotel room. I mean, incredible. And basically the, the, the families of these young men are giving up everything they've got to send them to a better world. Well, if I become the traffickers pin-up boy, I'm rather upset by that. <laughs> but um, It's <laughs> but extraordinary but all I was trying to do was expose the truth. Uh, yeah, look, as I say, Boris Johnson's government needs to put in place primary legislation very, very, very quickly indeed to stop all of this. It is the pull factors that are bringing people into this country. We are ridiculously soft on those that come here illegally. Uh, we've started to get a bit tougher on those that want to come legally from outside the European Union. Uh, we've got to get a grip on this very, very, very quickly. Uh, and I, I just, you know, I cross my fingers yeah. and hope the government delivers. But I tell you something very interesting. All the problems that Boris has had, you know, problems with their dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, problems uh, with the current farcical situation with education, uh, you know, where they keep on making statements and U-turning and all the rest of it. But if you actually look at detailed polling of in which area has the government's support from the public fallen the most? It is over immigration. Yeah. And all the lovely uh, people who spend their lives in Westminster, who work in politics and media, all thought and wrote many of them after the referendum, oh, isn't it marvellous, darlings, that nobody in Britain you know, really cares about immigration mm. anymore. And what I think I've helped to highlight is that people care deeply. Yes. One of the reasons we voted Brexit is we wanted to get back control of our borders. Mm. And the Prime Minister, who has a majority of 80 on the basis that he will deliver Brexit, is at the moment failing hopelessly on borders. Well, the good thing is, is that the Home Office now listens to this show, Nigel, because after we spoke the last time, we put it to them. Uh, in fact, they rang us while the show was on to say that, you know, oh, it was nothing to do with Nigel Farage that we um, uh, that we issued that statement. It was just because, uh, you know, somebody else had reported it. You know, and we said, well, entirely coincidental that you issued the statement <laughs> well, the day after <laughs> Nigel turned up uh, at the hotel, right? But you know what was interesting? They We asked them specifically, when uh, was Pretty Patel made aware of the fact that these people were in a hotel yeah. in her constituency. You know what they said? Friday, the day after you went there, which tells me yeah. that wow. the civil service, the home office people who work for for Pretty Patel, actually put these people in a hotel in her constituency without telling her. Uh, that's possible. But if you are the MP, I mean, if I was getting tip-offs from people living in Pretty Patel's constituency, mm. you would assume that Pretty Patel's staff and her agent would have known about this, would 
wouldn't you? You would have thought so. You would have thought so. I mean, I mean, I mean my, my assumption, Mike, is if I hadn't exposed this, nothing would have been said. Yeah. I mean, my, my argument simply is this. I believe that there are people in the civil service who are actively undermining the government uh, because they don't agree with it. And that, for me, is an absolute no-no. Well, look, of course, there are people in the civil service and there are people in, uh, you know, Romania, uh, and some of them work for the BBC and some of them work for the British Library and some of them work for the British Museum. Mm. Uh, and all of them seem to have a shared hatred and loathing of what this country is, what it stands for, what it's always stood for. Um, and that's why you're seeing, uh, you know, such such abject, weak behaviour when it comes to the illegal migrant issue. It's why we are seeing this crazy, uh, you know, woke, uh, woke business where the words of hope and glory won't be sung. Oh, I know. Um, well, that was going to be my last why, question. Why you're seeing, you know, you know, founders of founders of great collections in museums, statues being removed. And there is a link here between those who were the most ardent supporters of Remain, uh, almost allying um, with a Marxist cause, which is to destroy our national identity, to make us ashamed of who we are, so that the great Marxist revolution can come and we can all finish up having one world government. And if that sounds like an exaggeration, just have a look at the website mm. of what the Black Lives Matter movement actually stands for. Yes, absolutely right. It was going to be my last question to you about Land of Hope and Glory. I'm going to continue to play not only the song, but also the lyrics of Land of Hope and Glory for the rest of this week, yeah. uh, leading up to the last night of the proms. Uh, and I'm just wondering, yeah. what, what what more can we do? You know, can we all go oh. to some kind of mass sing-along at some point or other? You know, the way these people do <laughs> well, do do their kind of, you know, let's all, let's all demonstrate in favour of something. Well, how about we all stand up? The quiet, silent majority of this country stand up and admit that actually... We love Land of Hope and Glory. We love Real Britannia. I don't care whether people say, oh, yeah, but we don't really rule the waves anymore. Just shut up and sit down if you don't want to sing it. Well, absolutely. And let's remember that these songs actually are about liberty. Yeah. They're about us. They're about us fighting off European tyranny. And when it comes to slavery, Britons never, never, never shall be slaves, which I thought was a very inspiring theme for Brexit, actually. Yeah. But let, let's just remember, shall we? It was this country that was the first not just to abolish slavery not just to abolish the slave trade but to spend nearly half a century through the royal navy driving slavery out when many of our neighbors wish to continue with the trade compared to other western countries all over the world when it comes to slavery actually we were the ones that began and helped complete the process of abolishing it and it's about and i wonder how many people in british universities are being taught that at the moment exactly right nigel a pleasure to talk to you once again thank you so much for joining us uh, and have a very lovely tuesday we shall talk again soon nigel farage there a man that speaks a great deal of sense a man who is always welcome here on the home of common sense we don't need any lessons in history from the guardian reading yogurt knitting lentil munching morons who think that there's something wrong with the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I'll tell you what, we're going to play Real Britannia. We're going to play uh, Land of Hope and Glory uh, until you're sick of it. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I think it's time for another blast uh, of, I don't know, Land of Hope and Glory, shall we? Shall we do that? <laughs> there's another song that fills me with great joy and I make no apology for that and neither will I make any apology for it. The BBC on the other hand think that those words might be too dangerous for you to hear because of course calling this the land of hope and glory might somehow affect you in such a way that you might have pride in your own country. You might actually think Great Britain's great. Why would they not want you to hear those words? Let's talk to Emma Webb, uh, who is, of course, director uh, Civitas UK. Emma, a very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Good morning. Now, um, listen, I mean, I already feel as if I've been infected by some kind of toxic poison. I mean, what is wrong with the BBC that they say we can't hear the words? Yeah, I must have toxic goosebumps listening to it. (laughs) It's a terrible, terrible joke, isn't it, Mike? I wish it was. Um, Well, they're saying that um, that they they can have the sopranos singing songs like Jerusalem and God Save the Queen. Yeah. but they can't have the soprano doing Royal Britannia of Land and Hope and Glory because they say it wouldn't do it justice. Yeah. As if they think that an orchestral version is going to do it justice. You just proved by playing that that a soprano definitely can do it justice. Well, exactly so right. Pop out. I mean, I've never heard of Dalia Stasevska from Finland before. Uh, she's now uh, renowned for uh, deciding that our nation's music should not be used because it's a bit too nationalistic. And it kind of tells you an awful lot about the problem at the BBC that somebody from a different country and I've got nothing against Finland at all I've never been there uh, I'm told it's very near Russia and a bit cold um, basically can tell us that we shouldn't be so nationalistic it's this desire isn't it that the BBC seems to have to make everything as they put it progressive um, but but you know there are these things people people love to do them every year because they're perfect as they are people mm. love to sing these songs um, but they obviously have this desire to try and make everything conform to the Black Lives Matter and all of the other woke movements that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I, I just really think that this is an, another act of cultural vandalism that is part of a broader movement we're seeing at the National Trust um, today with the with the British Museum as well, removing the bust of their founder. Yes. Um, and it's just a terrible act of cultural vandalism. I mean, how soon is it going to be before the words British are actually removed from the British Museum and or uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation uh, or the British Library? You'll, careful, you'll get... Uh, you'll get uh, um, Professor Cox will get excitable. <laughs> <laughs> what, you mean the man who was named Plank of the Week just the other day? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think that people will feel as if they're being personally attacked by this actually mm. um, because they're you know they're trying to remove things that people they and, and you know they know that people feel this so strongly about these songs because as you said you know it really it stirs the spirit it makes you feel good it makes you feel patriotic which they think is some kind of horrible dirty feeling in fact it's just a natural love of your country yeah Isn't it interesting as well, because one of the things that we used to see an awful lot of, and it made us feel, generally speaking, quite cringy, uh, was all this kind of love for the European Union. You know, the fact that the European Union has its own kind of, you know, national anthem, if you like, you know, the ode to joy. uh, And the fact that, you know, they would all stand around waving this flag with uh, with yellow stars on it that was blue, as if we are no longer nationals. We are now kind of globalists in some way. Well, actually, at the I think I think it was at the last proms that they were waving European Union yes. flags. It was as if it was a sort of competing patriotism, but a patriotism that sought to be acceptable. Those were all the champagne socialists from Putney, I presume. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know, in in Scotland, having a, a sense of patriotism is, is isn't, isn't viewed as a dirty thing. It only seems to be something that the English are not allowed to have. Yes, a sense of, of love for their own history and heritage. Yeah. And as uh, Nigel Farage just pointed out to us, you know, in terms of the history of this nation, actually, Britain was absolutely at the very forefront of doing away with slavery, of modernising the world, of helping the world to become what it has now become. And why on earth, as I said earlier, would so many people be flocking to come here to live, travelling thousands of miles, risking their lives, if it was such an awful place? Well, we have a tremendous amount to be proud of, and I think normal people know that. But the the elites and the people people in the BBC and in our institutions are trying to beat that out of us mm. um, and to, to, to actually, I think, rid us of historical context and nuance by making everything about this new movement. And earlier today, we've seen that the British Library and um, the British Museum have removed this mm. bust of their founder. And the person who apparently signed this off in the most Orwellian way imaginable says that healing is knowledge. Um, and had they recontextualised <laughs> Well, what do they mean by healing? What you mean doing away with stuff, throwing it in the bin? Healing is knowledge doesn't even seem to make a radical sense. No, but I don't think that really matters in the grand scheme of things. And and you know they put this they put this in a in a in a new display, recontextualising it. Uh, even though this is the guy that you know founded them, that they obviously you know people do good things and bad things in their lives. Um, but everything now has to be seen through this prism of slavery. Mm. And 
regardless of what people have been saying about um, about what the BBC have now announced that they're going to do this orchestral version, and people are trying to backtrack and say, look, they weren't trying to ban this in the first place. The, the, the matter of the fact is that there are people who were calling for it to be banned. But Professor Kahinde Andrews is one example of this, saying that it's racist and the patriotic songs like this shouldn't be sung at all. Uh, so this is obviously part of this broader attack that we've been seeing on our heritage through the National Trust, through you know people vandalising our statues. It just seems to be that anything that is symbolic of English history has become completely taboo and yes. we're just not allowed to have any of it. And it really is a bandwagon which many people want to jump on. And I find it extraordinary that so many of the people who do jump on it have absolutely no knowledge of, uh, of anything that they talk about. Because, as I said, you know, history is history. There are things that happen in history which are not fantastically brilliant. I mean, for example, there are those people who say we should never have bombed Dresden, you know, and therefore that was some kind of war crime. Well, that's all very well when you're sitting in a, you know, an air-conditioned room somewhere near Cambridge University. But it's a little bit different uh, when you're getting bombs hailing down on you every single night of the week when you live in Clyde Bank or you live in Coventry, you live in Liverpool or you live in London. Right. And so therefore you fight back and you win the war. So the idea that sort of after the fact, everybody goes, oh, that was terrible. Well, of course it was terrible. It's called war. Yeah, I think what we have actually is a kind of a sort of an intellectual deficit. We've got some kind of um, problem with critical thinking on mass that seems to have just infected um, all of the people throughout our institutions and all across the population. Mm. We just don't seem to be able to think or, or to speak or to have any public discussion that has any nuance anymore because we've been um, overcome by this odd, utopian, kind of totalitarian thinking, partly as a consequence of the BLM movement, but as we know, you know, from, from all of the woke stuff that you always talk about, Mike, um, there's no nuance allowed because things are either totally saintly or totally diabolical. Uh, People are either good or bad and they're either on the scrap people, you know, they're not allowed to speak at all or, you know, we have to listen to absolutely everything they say and be uncritical of it. Yeah, it is quite extraordinary. Well, Emma, listen, we shall continue to fight the good fight. I'm sure you will as well. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Emma Webb, Conservative commentator from Civitas there. Uh, Here's this from uh, GB who says, this woke nonsense by the BBC over unstaging the words to a much-loved songs of last night at the proms is making my blood boil. It borders on treason. Thank goodness for Mike Graham Talk Radio, uh, who are going to play the songs regularly, and for Nigel Farage calling this out for what it is. Let's keep it going. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I don't need any reason to play this, right? I just like playing it. I particularly like playing it because it annoys the woke. It annoys the BBC. They think that you're not sensible enough to listen to the words. They're going to do last night at the proms with an instrumental version. Maybe they can have somebody playing it on the pan pipes, you know, like those late night television adverts. Never before seen. For God's sake. puts me in a good mood. I make no apology for it. Let's talk to a man who probably is also now in a good mood, having listened to that, Colonel Richard Kemp. A very good morning to you, Richard. Good morning. Land of hope and glory always puts me in a good mood. I mean, you know what? We started playing it yesterday because of this ridiculousness from the BBC, and it just lifts you. It just makes you feel great. You know, and I make no apology for that. Um, I, 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 I hasten to, to, uh, to, to add that the, the fact the BBC are somehow thinking that they're going to play a, a, a version without words because the words are so inflammatory that we can't hear them. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, the woke taking advantage of this current uh, crisis we've got all over a coronavirus in order to advance their agenda. That's what they're trying to do. And this is one way in which they can do it. It's disgraceful and it should be resisted at every turn. Yes, absolutely right. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are about this latest tank business, but I mean, I'm thinking that we should resist this as well, shouldn't we? I mean, Defence Chief's on the front page of the Times today uh, calling out um, the, the idea that we need to scrap tanks because they're kind of uh, old-fashioned. Well, I think the reality is that the Treasury have told the Ministry of Defence they've got to make further cuts. I mean, our armed forces are already decimated over many years, mm. but they've been told they've got to make further cuts, which in a way is understandable given the, uh, the, the crisis we're about to face economically following COVID. Um, and this will be one of the options they'll consider. They'll be considering many other options as well, but this is one that's obviously been highlighted. Mm. Um, in, in my view, it's a big mistake to cut defence further. I can see why they will want to do it, and it doesn't. Defence doesn't generally uh, rally many votes for politicians, unlike hospitals and uh, social welfare and all the rest of it. Right. But it's still very important. Um, h- however, they they always see um, you know that they can save money and also not lose too many votes in the process by cutting defence. But with the problem with tanks is. Um, Tanks are extremely expensive. They're not as expensive in many cases as aircraft and ships, but they are nevertheless very, very expensive. Yeah. As are other armoured vehicles. And um, they obviously make an attractive target for smashing into defence. The problem with it is that there's nothing to replace them yet. They're talking about, yeah, more money into cyber, more money into special forces, more money into drones. But none of those things yet are able to replace tanks. They might be one day. But today we've got China and Russia building huge numbers of tanks, China selling tanks all around the world, new VT4 main battle tanks. And we're talking about the possibility of getting rid of all ours. It's, it is a, it is gross insanity. It does seem very bizarre, because, I mean, you've obviously been in Afghanistan where tanks were absolutely essential for dealing with the kind of work that you were doing. Uh, even the Warriors, uh, which are sort of the armoured cars, if, if you like. I've been inside one of those when I was in Bosnia. You know, they are um, a very kind of, what you might say, uh, impressive force when they show up. You know, if you suddenly have 15 warrior, warriors coming down a road towards you, uh, you're going to stop doing what you thought you were going to do, and you're going to go running away 
Wayne Hyde. And, you know, the idea that we wouldn't be able to have that capability seems to me uh, to say, well, it's all very well saying, oh, our biggest threats are now coming from cyber warfare. Well, hang on. You know, you might still want to go after the people who are sending the cyber warfare and blow the hell out of them with a tank. I think in, in the foreseeable future, we're always going to need troops on the ground. We're never going to be able to deal with things from space, from through the airwaves, um, or from from the air itself. Mm. Well, I say never. I mean, we might in the future, but not not in the foreseeable future. We will need troops on the ground. And if you have troops on the ground in many circumstances, um, you need armor to protect them, and that means armor to ca- carry infantry soldiers around the battlefield, and also heavy armor, tanks. To, to destroy enemy armored vehicles, buildings, and bunkers, and the like, and, right. and and you know, without them, it makes our soldiers far more vulnerable. Now, you might argue that we're not going to be fighting that type of war again. Well, no one can ever say that. Mm. But I think the other point that people often fail to understand is that um, one one of the huge virtues of an armed forces, obviously, the main purpose is to use it in battle. But one of the main virtues of armed forces is to act as a deterrent. So that you prevent other countries from acting in a way that you will have to fight them. Deterrence is all important. If you, if you scrap all your tanks, scrap your military capability, basically put your hand up, you're inviting other countries to take advantage of that, whether it's against our own country mm. or against our allies and friends. Well, exactly right. It's the same argument, is it not, uh, that makes sure that we keep the nuclear deterrent intact in this country, not because we ever wish to use it, heaven, heaven forbid we would ever have to, but the point is if you do away with it, you don't any longer have any possible way of protecting the nation from an attack. It's exactly that argument. And we're, you know, we're right now, we're, contem- we're not contemplating, we're actually going to send British soldiers to Mali, including soldiers from my own regiment, the Royal Anglian Regiment, yeah. uh, to, to conduct operations in Mali. That is a very dangerous place. And uh, not, not only is it dangerous, but also the terrain there does not lend itself well to just wheeled vehicles. Mm. So I don't. there's no plan to send tanks at the moment, but it could well be that if that develops and evolves, tanks will be necessary or other forms of, uh, of tracked vehicles, which we're looking at possibly getting rid of altogether. Yeah. So, you, know, you, you you leave options, options that might be needed. We might not want to use them, but we might want to use them. You leave those options completely off the table if you get rid of that capability. Well, also, the piece in The Times suggests that we are alone in proposing this kind of absence of tanks. So in the end, uh, we will become uh, even more sort of denigrated as a force within NATO so that we will, we will actually have a, a smaller force uh, in terms of mechanical uh, activity than places like Poland, certainly Germany uh, and many other European nations. And so our, our relevance, in a way, uh, will cease to be uh, as important as it now is. Absolutely. We have a responsibility to... to maintain a serious high-grade military force we're a permanent member of the un security council that carries with it responsibility we also have the legacy of our our empire and our commonwealth which gives us other responsibilities around the world still to those countries that are closely allied to us and friends to us who may well become exposed and when you look at the the world climate look at the way that china is rapidly building up its military forces look Mm. at russia they're spending a lot of money on defence compared to, or certainly have a lot of defence capability compared to us. Um, we, we do need to retain serious defence capability if we are going to remain a serious world player and if we're going to be able to defend our people and defend our friends. Sure. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, I, I think we've got already we've gone much too far in in slashing our defence budget. Uh, and and yes, I understand why. We're about to face very, very difficult times, but this is not the time, I don't believe, to to, to reduce defence any further. And, and, and this will, of course, be done on the pretense that we're going to have more capable, more relevant armed forces today, but, oh, by chance, they happen to be cheaper. Right. I mean, there is some suggestion that we might buy in some tanks, I think, from Germany. I'm not sure who makes our tanks, the challengers and all of that, and the warriors, but I presume they're made within these uh, British Isles. Um, if we start buying in tanks from overseas... That also leaves us open, does it not, to kind of, you know, a slightly difficult situation in as much as we're not controlling the supply and we're not controlling uh, the speed at which those things can be made. I'm surprised nobody's yet suggested we buy Chinese tanks because they want to buy Chinese power stations and Chinese internet. Yeah, right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree, I agree with you. I think, I think it, ideally we would continue to develop and manufacture our own tanks and retain that that defense capability Mm. but 
there is also an argument, which I don't strongly disagree with, that suggests that if you can buy more bangs for your buck, in other words, more tanks for your pound, um, by, by going to a different country, like, for example, Germany, which makes a very, very effective leopard tank, or America, which also has some very effective tanks, then we should consider those options as well. We should certainly consider them. There are, I, I would say, you know, the, 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 the argument as to which is the most effective tank is one that's always closely discussed. But I would favour, personally, I would favour buying American tanks, not necessarily because they're necessarily better, but because America is our closest mm -hmm. ally and the ally we're always going to be involved with. And having common equipment helps with interoperability as well as being more cost effective. So I, I would agree with you. I think if possible, continue to buy and continue to manufacture British tanks, but look at other options. Absolutely right. And just finally, Richard, we haven't spoken for a while. What's your view, sort of, you know, medium to long term about our relationship within the EU? Uh, obviously, we are leaving uh, the European Union. We have left, but we're not leaving properly until the end of the, the year, end of December. You know, what does it mean for uh, sort of joint actions within the EU currently? What does it mean for NATO? Are you confident that we will be still a sort of force to be reckoned with uh, within the European continent? I think probably more so than before. And, and Europe has always depended very, very heavily on the UK, um, going back, you know, going back centuries, actually, mm. but certainly in recent years, and, and today continue to do so. France and Britain are the only two countries today which have serious armed forces and are prepared to use them. I'm not denigrating other countries who have strong militaries like Poland and, 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 and various others, but, but Britain has a potent military force and has the will to use it, which is all important. So I think that force, whether we're in the EU or not, will remain extremely important for Europe's defence. And of course, for many decades, our main defensive mechanism uh, in Europe has not been the EU. They've never really done anything of any significance to contribute to defence. Um, NATO is our main defensive mechanism and we will remain, and we are still a part of NATO, as the other European countries are, even though they risk jeopardising their, 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 their strength and their positions in NATO by refusing to spend enough money on defence. Mm, no, quite. Colonel Richard Kemp, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Former Government Cobra Security Committee Chair, uh, former uh, Commander of Allied Forces and British Forces in Afghanistan, agrees with me, not surprisingly, that a, 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 you know an army that doesn't have any tanks, as it says here on the front page of the Times this morning, I mean... Who's coming up with this stuff? You know, I mean, what next? Should we have a kitchen uh, without any um, cookers? Should we have a restaurant without any chefs? How can you have an army without any tanks? It makes no sense at all, does it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us say a very good afternoon to Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown. Sir Geoffrey, thanks for joining us. Very good afternoon. Hello, Mike. That's a wonderful, pithy introduction. Well done. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. I, I, I celebrate pithiness at uh, every opportunity that I can. <laughs> we might even end with a rousing chorus of uh, God Save the Queen if we, if we play or our cards. Or Land and Hope and Glory well, we've, been, we've been doing that all day, so we may do that yes. as well. But I tell you what, it's very important. And I'm very pleased to see that, that some of you and your fellow MPs have got this kind of uh, message for Boris Johnson that, you know, it's not really good enough to have people not coming back to work when the company that they work for uh, won't allow them to, or when the company says, you know, you're okay working from home. You know, I don't really wish to see a country where uh, everybody seems to be stuck in self-isolation and the sociolo sociological damage that that will then do uh, is, is remarkable, but also the economic damage to sort of ancillary services, to lots of other people who need tourism dollars and who need people coming into London in order to, to feed their own families. You know, it's a very dangerous place we're going, I think. Do you know what, Mike? I was thinking during your introduction that every employer should have it in their mind to make sure that their employees come into work at least once a week. Yeah. I've, I've got um, people who work for me that I haven't seen face to face for months right. and they they want to come back to work. Uh, but they are concerned about the virus. And I think this is what we've got to overcome. We've got to overcome people's concern about the virus and make sure that where it's possible, their social distance and everything else, the surfaces are clean, they're washing their hands and so on. But they, for, their, for their mental sanity, they need to come back to work, I think, at least one, maybe more than one day a week. 
Yes, because I think that's the part that people are overlooking. I mean, as I say, all weekend I was arguing with people on social media who said, you know, you're a, you're a dinosaur, you're too old-fashioned, we're already going to go this way anyway. People can do much better work from home, they can concentrate more, uh, they're less distracted. I don't go along with any of that. I think without interaction with individual other human beings, you will become a sort of a cipher. You won't be able to actually operate with, in normal society anymore. I agree with that. I mean, whether it's school children or whether it's adult, we are social beings. Yeah. We do thrive on social interaction. And the workplace is part of that. Mm. And whilst one can do the basic job from home on a computer like this, I do think we need to interact with each other and bounce ideas off each other. Right. I mean, surely one of the benefits of, of lockdown is people have been thinking about their jobs or thinking about their businesses and thinking how they could do it better. Mm. And one of the ways of doing this is to be able to actually interact with each other. Well, I'm a, for one, I'm sick to death, uh, notwithstanding what we're currently doing, obviously, of having these kind of Zoom meetings with people, which is nothing like sitting in a room with four or five other people, kind of brainstorming and f firing off one another, making fun of one another, you know, doing all of the things that, that we are meant to do uh, as individuals, because you can't do the same uh, on uh, virtually as, as you can in person. And I think there's a really there are some really serious things about this conversation, Mike. One is we've touched on is the mental health of people. But I think the second thing is that if uh, uh, the government, I think, has done a great job through the packages that the Chancellor has announced yeah. to keep businesses going. But I really do feel fear a wave of unemployment uh, about to hit us, mm. um, particularly from in, involving youngsters. Once the sort of businesses loans have to be repaid, once the money that the government's given out in grants has run out in keeping the cash flow of businesses. Uh, I, I actually fear that in the autumn and winter, we are going to get a problem, particularly with small businesses. Yeah. And I think we need to keep emphasising that. Small businesses uh, need to do whatever they can and big businesses need to do whatever they can mm. to help those small businesses in the supply chains to keep everybody going. No question, because I have friends in the hospitality business who are well aware of the fact that the furlough scheme is going to run out and Rishi Sunak's probably not going to renew it. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and I said, well, it had to happen eventually because you can't sort of have this endless furlough where, uh, in his case, he continues to pay his employees through the furlough scheme. But once that furlough scheme runs out uh, and he runs nightclubs, this guy, he's not going to be able to open the business. He's not going to be able to keep those people employed. He's going to have to let them all go. And there's going to be a couple of hundred people joining the dole queue as a result and so um you know it's going to be very important i would have thought for us to get as much of the rest of the economy going so that they can go and find other jobs but if we don't have any other jobs for them it's just going to be another cost to the to the taxpayer you're spot on, Mike. It's much better to have people going out there, uh, businesses supplying services, uh, the public going out there, spending money, not being too afraid, but, but using the social... I think what we're going to have to do, in, even for quite a long time, is to exercise social distancing, exercise precautions like washing hands, um, but at the same time, not be too afraid of getting out there, going to the shops, spending money, going to hospitality places, your nightclub and so on uh, and practicing proper social distancing but just get out there mm. uh, if we frighten people too much they just won't go out yeah i mean could the government be doing more in terms of the civil service which i also raised in in my introduction because i think that if you get the civil servants back then that kind of gives an example to um, the big companies like the banks and the people in canary wharf and others uh, who have got loads and loads of empty buildings that they're just not fulfilling at the moment or, or populating whereas at least if the government was to say well look we've got all the civil servants back you need to follow suit I entirely agree. Uh, I mean, even in the House of Commons, they have been very, very cautious about getting people back. Mm. And I think with proper social distancing, keeping services clean, I think it is possible to get a lot of them back. And I think it is desirable that they come back because then they start paying money in the restaurants and the, uh, and the cafes yeah. and the bars and so on. It really is important that we start to get this economy moving again. Otherwise, this unemployment peak is going to be far worse. And as um, an employer yourself, Sir Jeffrey, I mean, is it is it onerous particularly to employers um, who have to try and make their workplaces safer? Because I hear that from some small to medium sized businesses who say, look, it's just not worth our while because we'd have to spend sort of 30 to 40,000 quid making our offices and our premises COVID safe. 
Well, we've been um, sent a huge screed from the speaker and we've got to do a risk assessment and everything else. Mm. That's fine. But almost the implication is, well, actually, we don't want to see staff coming back because, we're, you know, the, the whole process is so onerous. Mm. Actually, the onus should be the other way around. It should be where possible. Let's get the staff back. Let's get the civil service back so that we start to get this economy moving. And, and I think we're just too risk averse in yeah. the public sector. Right. And we've got to get we've got to get moving again. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because it seems to me, and I'm not asking you to make any kind of political statement here, but it seems to me that Downing Street has got two schools of thought. One uh, is let's get the economy moving. Let's get everybody, everybody back to work. They've issued those those kind of uh, impl- implorations in the past. However, you've also got the kind of medical side and the advisors uh, like Chris Whitty uh, who are saying, oh, you know, we have to be careful. We have to be cautious. There might be a second wave. And I mean, I think there's a fear factor going on where they're worried that somebody's going to look back at history and say, oh, look, Boris Johnson caused the deaths of all these people. They've got to get out of that mindset, haven't they? Absolutely. I mean, the medics have a job to do, and I understand that. They want to try and prevent as many cases of COVID and therefore deaths as possible. But on the other hand, they are not living everybody's everyday lives. Their mental health problems, their unemployment problems, the business problems. We have to get this economy moving, and we mustn't be too risk-averse about doing it. Mm. No, exactly right. And so as far as your kind of, um, I I would say, I suppose it's a sort of a a loose amalgamation of Tory MPs. Are you making those... uh, presentations to Downing Street and saying look let's get let's get the, the civil servants back let's start with parliament you know you know it would be great to see and I know I'm probably um, sort of you know blowing into the wind here but it would be great to see parliament back I mean I really miss proper prime minister's questions with a full house you know it's not the same it's getting better but it's just not the same I had a, um, I'm sure you won't mind me saying this a zoom call with Jacob Rees-Mogg and my members the other right. day And I was emphasising to him the point that we've got to get the House of Commons back to near as near normal as possible, as soon as possible, because it does set an example to the rest of the nation. And frankly, having limiting 50 people in the chamber at any one time means that the whole thing is stultified. Mm. It's not it's not as uh, as interactive as it was when it was properly functioning. So I think there are a number of things the, the public sector could do. It, it obviously, it can provide a lot of uh, uh, big firms uh, contracts, which will employ a lot of people. That's one point. The investment that Boris is doing is fantastic. We need to get civil servants back to work. We need to get parliament working so that the public, the world can see that we are optimistic. And then I think if we do get a spike, we've got to be prepared to close that mm. particular business or that particular community or that particular locality down for a little while. But let's, for goodness sake, get them back and try and see how it works. Well, exactly, because I think we, uh, we we need to live with this disease rather than avoiding uh, it whenever it sort of pops its head up because we need tourism back, we need travelling facilities available to people, we need the cities back, and we just need to get back to as much of it. I'm not a fan of this new normal nonsense. I'm, I'm happy to go uh, and take a risk, and some people may not wish to do that, in which case they don't have to, but you're absolutely right. You can't keep locking everything down every time somebody gets infected or because somebody's tested positive well so mark walpert who's a member of sage so we're likely to have to live with this thing for several years let's learn to live with it take the precautions not forget the precautions we've got to keep social isolating we've got to do the normal things like wash our hands all of that must be done but let's learn to live with the disease but let's not overreact to it and let's get people back to as near a normal life as possible exactly right now just before i let you go uh, we're gonna have another blast of rule britannia i'm going to ask for your thoughts on this the bbc uh, have finally sort of caved into popular opinion and said all right we will play it but without the words i mean what's the point why are they doing this why do you think the bbc is so ashamed of our history i think it's pathetic I mean, the BBC want to dumb down everything that is great about this country. Now, I'm, I accept there were bits of our history that weren't all that marvellous. But let's, for goodness sake, it is our history. Everybody needs to learn our history and then decide for themselves what's good and what's bad. But let's celebrate uh, our past and what was good. And our musical achievements were certainly one of those that were really good and really world-beating. Let's not just dumb everything down that's good about this country. Absolutely right. I mean, who could not be stirred by this? Oh, 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 oh,
Sir Jeffrey Clinton Brown. That's great. That's what I like to see. You know, it doesn't fill you with pride. It just makes you puff your chest out. It's brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely. And we should be proud of what's best about British. Yes, absolutely right. So, Geoffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have a very pleasant uh, Tuesday afternoon. We'll speak again soon. Uh, Sir Geoffrey Clinton Clifton Brown, Conservative MP for the Cotswolds. Terribly patriotic man, as I am, as you are, as we are in this great nation of these islands of Great Britain. It is a fantastic place to be. It's a fantastic place to live. And it's a fantastic place to celebrate. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.